Hi everyone. This week we are in our fourth week looking at the subject of purpose. So I kind of wonder, as we start off, maybe you want to hit pause and just stop and reflect for five minutes or discuss with your, your, your family or friends, whoever you happen to be gathered with. What are the kind of things that we think about when we ask ourselves the question, what is our purpose? Or what is the purpose of something or some activity or, or some other? Just to start you off, you don't have to if you don't want to, but if you want to, hit pause and, and just ask that question. What are the kind of things that we think about? So welcome back if you just hit pause and came back. Um, I think that for me, when I get into this kind of conversation or, or when I kind of listen and hear us talking wider in society or uh, whether it's in media or anything, any kind of discussion which comes around the subject of purpose, I often think that we are left with this kind of sense of somehow um, we we have a, a, something we need to measure up to. There's some kind of standard we're supposed to be meeting, something we're supposed to be attaining to, something we're supposed to be reaching. And as Christians in the church, that often turns into this sense of, well, my purpose is to serve God. And because my, ser- my purpose is to serve God, that means there are things that God wants me to do, and they're not necessarily the things that I want to do. So my purpose is somehow to say no to the things I want to do and say yes to the things that God wants me to do. Uh, but then we can be left with this feeling of, well, how do we know when we've done enough of the things that God wants us to do for us to feel like we've actually arrived or we've actually uh, got somewhere that has somehow justified our existence? And so very quickly, the, the question of purpose, whether we realize it or not, actually tracks into deeper questions of identity which is to say questions of worthiness are a question of identity. Uh, am I justified in my existence? Have I contributed more that is good than I have taken from the world or, or something like that? Or, or God has done all these things for me or I've been given all these opportunities or maybe it's privilege. A lot of conversation in our society at the moment about um, varying degrees of uh, privilege, social privilege, economic privilege, racial privilege, class privilege, gender privilege. Uh, all of these things that say, well, I've been given all of these things, or I've then, how am I showing myself worthy of having received them? And this is very much something that sits implicitly in our whole culture, and it, and it sits in the culture of the church as well. And I think that uh, having been a pastor uh, in the past, you know, on and off, and, and operated pastorally in the past for people, I found in pastoral conversations with others as well, this often is something that comes up. How, how do I know when I have done enough? And, and there's, it kind of sits with this unease or this sense of uh, deficiency somehow that if we really think about ourselves uh, for long enough, we'll start to think, actually, we don't really like ourselves very much because we, uh, we don't really consider that we are, uh, are, are good or worthy or, or, or these other sorts of things. So it's very deeply uh, anchored in this sense of identity. Who are we? What is our value? What is our worth? And this uh, tracks into our discussions around purpose. I do think that we often find the question of purpose easier to talk about because it lets us then begin to talk about behaviors or actions. My purpose might be to be the best at X, Y, Z, or my purpose might be to make people's lives better, or my purpose might be to be a good parent to my children, whatever it might be. A lot of these things are framed in terms of of actions, things that we can measure or we can quantify. But I don't know if you've noticed that 
if you're thinking like this, or if you're conscious that you're thinking like this, it never really is enough. Even if you feel like you perhaps have done something that is good, you've, you've accomplished something, and you think, yeah, that, that was really uh, an important thing. Well, it's probably short-lived. The sense of satisfaction is short-lived. An, an interesting analogy is kind of in the sports world, that the uh, the levels of depression in retired professional athletes are very, very high. And one of the reasons psychologically we might say or, or suggest this happens is because people peak very early in their athletic careers, you know, in their late teens, perhaps, or early 20s. We've just finished the Olympics a few weeks ago and the Paralympics, and we've seen, you know, p- people kind of hitting their peak. Some of them have hit their peak, and they, uh, they, they then are in a situation where, well, perhaps I've hit 25, and I know that I will never be as good at this thing, this sport, you know, I'll never be able to run as fast uh, in now for, for the rest of my life than I ran just a moment ago. And so on the one hand, there's this sense of, well, I've arrived somewhere, but actually that arrival also comes with a kind of ending. And when your whole life has been dedicated, you know, training 10 hours a day, whatever it is, you know, re- regimented eating, all these kind of things to be focused for that one goal, suddenly you reach it and that was my purpose. My purpose was to attain, to the, get this gold medal or, or whatever it is, or to be a competitor, to at least show up. Uh, but then what happens, what comes after that? And I think that this mentality is perhaps one we can, we can relate to thinking about it in a sports context. But how does that feed back into our consciousness of ourselves as human beings? And how does the Christian faith, how does the, the, the message of the gospel inform the way that we are to think about these sorts of things? How does it actually diagnose them to begin with? I'd like to suggest that because the questions of purpose arise from identity, questions of identity, that the questions of identity are also attached to questions of what is our nature. The identity of a thing is somehow connected to its nature. And again, in our society right now, Issues of what is human nature are huge. They are, these are massive questions. In fact, academically speaking, it's, it's quite a trendy uh, thought to suggest that there is really no such thing as human nature at all, that people can pretty much be molded into almost any shape or size, and it's all dependent on what society just invents or constructs arbitrarily. And uh, that's not a Christian argument, I have to say, um, but it is one that is quite powerful in conversations around what what do we do? What is meaningful? What is uh, purposeful? uh, What is real in our world and in our society? As Christians, we believe there are things that that, that are real, Um, but how do we know what those things are? That, I think, is the important question. How do we know what our nature is? How do we know what our identity is? And therefore, how is our purpose to emerge from those things? I'd like to take us back again to a favorite passage of mine. It's Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is kind of the story, the, the, the Hebrew story, how everything goes wrong. Like, what is the problem? The, the essence of the problem that is, boils down to our whole world, our whole way of being as people, as human beings, as societies, as families, as nations, and as the world that we are part, we are part of and that, that we share, the natural world, the environment. Where does the problem start? Because when we start to ask these questions of ourselves, we begin to feel a bit uneasy. We think, well, we don't quite measure it. Something feels like it's wrong. Something feels like it's out of place. And we're not really sure. We're uncertain of our place in it. Or we are certain we're, uns- we're certain that our, our place is destructive or it's bad or deficient in some way. 
Well, the Hebrew Bible takes us back to Genesis chapter 2, where you have Adam and Eve, the first humans, and they're in the garden of God's paradise, and everything is good, and it's all harmonious. It's all working well. And then the snake comes along and, uh, and puts a, asks a question, uh, brings a temptation. And that temptation is in the form of the question. And the snake says to Eve, did God really say that if you were to take uh, that you, you weren't to take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you were to take the knowledge, uh, the, the fruit of that tree, you would die. And then the snake says, God just doesn't want you to be like him. If you take the, the fruit of that tree, then you'll become like God, and you'll know good and evil, and then you'll be godlike. So within this is, a, is, is the question, the suggestion that you, Eve, are somehow deficient in the state you're in right now. You're missing something. You're lacking something. You didn't feel it before, but now I'm going to come and offer you this question and you're going to feel it. You're going to begin to ask the question, oh yeah, actually, maybe I, maybe I am somehow falling short. Maybe I, maybe I am somehow not worthy of God. Maybe I don't measure up. And here there's this beautiful looking tree and it looks really attractive. It looks really sensible. It looks really logical. It looks really appetizing. And if I take from that fruit, then I can correct the thing that is deficient in me and I can become the thing that I want to be. And that's to be like God. That, that's the, how the, the story puts it. And then if you, I'm sure we're all familiar with the story. Um, she takes the fruit, Adam takes the fruit, and then immediately what happens to them is they become conscious of their nakedness. So they weren't wearing clothes before. It didn't bother them until that point. Suddenly they took the fruit and it did bother them. And immediately they began to feel shame. They were, they were ashamed. And shame is a very interesting emotion because it's this kind of pervading sense of deficiency. It's like that, that thought of being lacking or deficient that spreads out into all of our, uh, our feeling and our thinking. And if, if you're conscious of a time when you felt ashamed, you'll know that it takes over everything of your experience in that moment. And it is like Jesus talks about a yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of the dough. Shame penetrates and permeates everything once it's present. And the story of Genesis 2 is a story of how shame emerges within the human consciousness or within human life. And it starts with this question. It's a question of deficiency. Am I enough as I am? And even asking the question is to suggest that you've begun to think, well, maybe I'm not enough as I am. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil offers us a way, offers us a methodology to remedy this apparent problem. Of course, the story in Genesis actually begins by saying Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, which means they are already godlike, but they, they didn't realize it. When the question came, they then began to doubt it, and then an, uh, an, an alternative way of being was offered to them, and that was the way of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I would like to put my spin on how I'd understand the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. If you think about it, it's a system that says to you, you need to learn what is good and learn what is bad. Then you can choose the good and reject the bad. And if you find that you are not choosing the good sufficiently and not rejecting the bad sufficiently, then it's because your willpower is suffering somehow. You need to psych yourself up more. And if you find that you can't psych yourself up more, then maybe you just need to do something more drastic. Perhaps you need to uh, fast. Perhaps you need to uh, take a cold shower. Perhaps you need to get up at three in the morning and, and say, uh, you know, an hour's worth of prayers. Or maybe you need to give more money away. Maybe, maybe you need to run harder, work harder, push harder in order to 
subjugate your willpower and drive yourself towards the good and forsake the bad. And how do we know what is good and bad anyway? Well, here's a set of rules. Here's a set of principles that we can teach and we can pass on. We can memorize. We can work into us and train ourselves in them so that we can we can continue to progress and improve ourselves and somehow uh, become worthy, which becoming worthy is the same as getting rid of shame. It's the, it's the two sides of the same coin. To rid ourselves of shame and to become worthy in our minds are really two sides of the same thing. If we don't have shame, it's because we feel that we're worthy. If we feel unworthy, well, that's actually the same thing as shame. It's, it's the, the same consciousness, the same state of mind that's there. So the world system, and when I say the world system, in the neg- I mean the world in a negative sense, not the world in a positive sense, as in the good world that God created, but the world system that is set up in the Bible and in Christian thought as the very antithesis to God's way of being. The world system is entirely predicated, is entirely based on this idea of self-improvement, of, of improvement of all kinds. It's like things are wrong, we have to fix them. We have to push harder, we have to progress. Our whole Western society is based on this idea of continual progression. It manifests in a strange way in the idea of GDP growth. You know, we've constantly got to grow the economy, constantly have to get the, the next best technology, the next best improvement. And yet, it creates this sort of treadmill, this rat race that everybody's in. And once in a while, people will stop and think, well, what's it all for? Where does it all go? Where does it all end anyway? What's the purpose of all of this? Or is it just constantly reaching and striving and, and trying to improve uh, and get ahead uh, to the next thing? The New Testament says a lot about self-denial. We were looking at this uh, last week in, in Romans 12, you know, offering our bodies as living sacrifices. What does sacrifice actually mean? What does denying yourself actually mean? I think we often frame self-denial in the, the way that I said it before. Well, there are things that God wants me to do and things that I want to do. So self-denial means I don't do the things that I want to do. I shut those down and instead force myself to do the things that God wants me to do. That's kind of the... The, the, how I think we often understand the concept of, uh, of self-denial. But I'd like to suggest a different way of thinking about self-denial. One that says, you have permission to deny the logic of self-improvement. You can deny the logic of self-improvement. You see, self-improvement has a logic to it. It has a rationale that says, like the snake said to Eve in the garden, you are lacking, but you can solve your problem if you just do this thing. Go and take that fruit. Go and adopt this lens, this way of looking at the world, and then you can improve yourself to become like God. Jesus, however, has come to free us from anything that says self-hyphen, self-consciousness, self-effort, self-improvement, self pride, whatever it is, selfish ambition, all of these things, he comes to negate them and liberate us from the tyranny of self-hyphen anything, self-anything. So I want to say we have, first of all, permission to be freed from the logic of self-improvement. Jesus put it like this, which of you by worrying can add a single inch to your height? The image there is someone who says, well, I'm, I'm too short. I need to get taller. I need to get stronger. I need to get bigger. I need to be more of a competitor. I need to be uh, more ready to accomplish and take the bull by the horns and press forward or whatever it is. I, and I can't do it yet. And I need to get myself, I need to get myself taller. So I, I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to keep pressing on. I'm going to keep fighting, keep doing all these things. 
Jesus speaks into that and says, your anxiety-driven efforts can't add a single inch to your height. Well, what's hidden within that, of course, is, is, is another question. Well, what is it that does add an inch to your height? What is it that does actually grow you in natural terms? Because the concept of spiritual growth is really, you know, a, a, a metaphor that's based on natural growth. We see something growing naturally, and we talk about growth, and we talk about spiritual growth. We use the same word. We're talking about growth. So I, I wonder if you've ever seen uh, a, a child try and grow themselves up by being really, really anxious. It's like, how, how, I've got to get my, make myself a bit taller. I've got to get a bit stronger. Actually, if we, if we stop and imagine that for a moment, what kind of a circumstances might a child think like that? Uh, I, I think it's, it's quite obvious, actually. They think like that when they, when they feel afraid, when they feel threatened, when they feel like we, we can't survive. Maybe they're in a situation where they, they, they don't have parents to look after them or there are problems in the home or maybe they're, they're orphaned or they're, they're in really difficult situations and they're having, them, they're having to grow up too quickly. We talk about that with children, you know. Adverse circumstances and, and, and troubles and, uh, and, and suffering forcing children to grow up too fast. Well, we can see the effect that that has on them is really destructive. And often that leads to years of therapy and, you know, and, and other issues later on in life. Um, yet we still, we so quickly employ the same kind of mentality when we view our own spiritual growth. I must be better at praying. I must be better at giving. I must be better at loving. All of these things. And we get into this anxiety-driven self-effort. Well, Jesus has come to save us from that. I, I mentioned earlier this question, what is our nature? What is our identity? Jesus says in John 10, quoting the Psalms, he says, God says, you are gods. Like, you are, you are gods. You are God-like. Not you are God apostrophe S. You are God S. You know, you are plural. You are all little gods. That's what he says to the Pharisees. And it's interesting to stop and consider, well, what did Jesus mean when he said that? You are gods. He's trying to tell us, I think, take us right back to the, the issue that Adam had in, in Genesis and Eve, and Eve had in Genesis. They believed the lie that they weren't like God. So they started doing other things to try and become something else. But Jesus isn't saying they ever ceased to be like God. He actually said to all of us, he said to the Pharisees, you are gods. He uses the present tense. This is what the scripture says. And he says, the scripture cannot be broken. This is what it is telling you. So he's speaking to us right now, and he's saying any way in which this world system has caused us to develop a consciousness that we are not like God intrinsically of our nature by default, he's, he's breaking through that, and he's saying, actually, you are. This is what the scripture says. Can you believe it? Are you able to believe me when I tell you this, that you are God-like by default, by definition, by design? I think part of the problem is that we in the West have for a long time had this foundational idea of a concept of original sin. And original sin is, a, is an idea that was codified by St. Augustine, who said many great things, but some of the things he said weren't so great. And one of the things he really brought in was this idea of original sin. And this is the, the, the notion that by default, intrinsically, the nature of human beings is fundamentally evil that your default starting point is evil. From the point of conception onwards, you are evil. Even to the point where Augustine believed that if a, a, a baby um, was born, stillborn, you know, if they, if they died in childbirth, then that baby would go to hell uh, automatically unless 
they were baptized as uh, you know as an, an, as an infant. There are still some rites in um, in the, uh, the the Catholic Church for the baptism of stillborn infants because this idea still lingers that we you, you are intrinsically by default sinful and corrupt even from conception. And I actually don't believe that's true. I don't believe that's what the gospel teaches. I don't believe that's what Jesus teaches. In fact, if you remember the story where Jesus is with the uh, uh, the children and the children are trying to come to him and the disciples are trying to stop them and J- Jesus rebukes the disciples and he says, actually, you have to become like them if you want to see the kingdom. Unless you can become like a child, like they are, you cannot even see the kingdom, let alone enter it. What's he speaking into? He's actually trying to tell them, disciples, you think these children are deficient and they need to become like you. Actually, you're the ones who have become deficient in your thinking and you need to go back to be like them. You need to return to yourself. The prodigal son in in Luke, when he uh, is with the pigs, it, it actually says he came back to himself. He returned to himself is the language used in the Greek. Uh, for, for repentance and that. He, he came to his senses. It's sometimes translated in our, our Bibles, but it actually says he came back to himself. So actually, one of the things that Jesus is doing is healing our self-image, our identity. Uh, he's actually getting rid of the self-image, in fact, and, uh, and, and showing us who we really are and how that is anchored in him. So how does this relate to the question of purpose exactly? There's a scripture that says, we love because we're first loved, specifically because we're first loved by God. That we actually develop the, uh, the capacity to love by receiving and knowing the love of God. It's in, in knowing this love that somehow spontaneously we become loving people. Um, it, it's kind of the difference between saying, uh, okay, Command, like this idea of a command where, where the Bible says, you know, you shall love the Lord your God as a command. And then you're like, well, how on earth do I love God? How do I do that then? I have to make myself love him. Actually, the, the New Testament says that's not how it works at all. Um, love is a spontaneous response of the heart. It's something that emerges not under your control. It's something that grows organically. See, there was a second tree in the garden. There's a tree called the tree of life. And that's a different tree from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're both trees, and they both have similar promises attached to them. Only the one turns up empty. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil promises you godlikeness through the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge of right and wrong, and the application of self-effort. The tree of life promises you godlikeness just as the organic growth of the love and the life of God within you. It's, an, it's a natural growth. It's one that is spontaneous. It's not forced it's one where it says, okay, maybe there are things that God wants me to do, but actually they're the same, they are the same things as the things I want to do because the way that I think about things is the same as the way God thinks about things. I naturally want to be loving because God is loving and he loves me and he's in me. And the process of enjoying that love and receiving that love makes me also want to love other people. I don't need to force that to happen. I don't need to make it happen. It just emerges and overflows naturally. Love is the natural and spontaneous consequence of being loved and knowing that you're loved. So, we've had this world system, this mentality that I would argue is predicated on a lie. And it's the lie that somehow our purpose is to improve ourselves and become something that we're not. 
Whereas I believe that the, the gospel message is what we could never become in our own effort, Christ has made us. He's made us by design, and to top it all off, just in case there's any doubt that there could, uh, that, that, that could ever get in there, he has also become us in the flesh. He's lived our life, he's died our death, and he's risen our resurrection, and he's ascended our ascension. He's taken us with him in the, the whole uh, the, the, the whole kind of A to Z. He's done the whole thing in us. So that there's no aspect of life where we can look and say, well, that has not been taken on by Jesus. That's not been received by him. Some final thoughts and how this really, I think, anchors in uh, practically for us. I've often heard it said, you know, our, our purpose is to is to worship God. And that's not a bad statement as long as we understand the concept of worship correctly. And we can talk about worship as singing songs. We can talk about worship as doing kind of devotional activities. We can even talk about worship as uh, acts of service and, and all of that. It, it's all fine. That's all part of it. But here's an interesting uh, thing. I, I don't know if you've ever thought of this. The scripture says that the sun worships God. I don't mean sun, S-O-N, I mean the sun, S-U-N, you know, the shining big blazing fireball in the sky. The sun worships God. The scripture says that the moon worships God. It says that the stars and all the firmament worship God. Oh, I don't know if you've ever stopped and wondered that. How is it that the sun, the moon, and the stars, how is it that the trees, that the rocks, will uh, that, that they actually do and are worshiping? Do you see a rock... Uh, you know, carrying out acts of um, self-denial or, or, uh, or self-improvement? Or do you see the sun trying to learn all the worship songs, you know? Or do you, do you see the moon uh, t- t- turning up to, you know, do, do the, the homeless shelter or these other things? These are all good and valid things, and, and they, they can be right and good worship. But we don't see those uh, things do any of them Yet, the scripture says they worship God. Well, how can that be? I think that they worship God. I think the sun worships God by being the sun. The moon worships God by being the moon. After all, who is their creator? He created and and designed them to be a certain way and to shine with a certain light, to shine with a certain glory. The New Testament tells us, you know, each one differs from the other in glory, but it has its glory. All those glories are a reflection of the the glory of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So how is it that we discover our purpose? If we say our purpose is worship, well, how do we know what worship actually is? Authentic worship that's worship in spirit and in truth. I think our, our worship is like the worship of the Son. When we know who we are in Him, when we know what He's done us, when we know that there is nothing intrinsically deficient about us because Jesus has already taken all, into himself. He's already gathered everything up uh, in his own body. All of you, all the good, all the bad, he's gathered it up. When we know that to be the case, then suddenly all the pressure comes off, all the shame disappears, and there's a lightness that comes in. You know, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Um, You know, I'm often, uh, my ears prick up whenever I hear Christians talk about, well, the, the Christian life is so hard, it's so difficult, and these things. I'm like, I think you're contradicting Jesus. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I don't know what burden you're under. If it's a difficult and a heavy burden, it's not the burden that Jesus was talking about. 
Um, and I don't want to negate anyone's experience, but I, I just want to believe the Bible. And when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he says, look, you can cast your burdens onto me. You can take my burden. It's easy. Jesus told you the Christian life is easy. Jesus told you the Christian life is light. Well, it doesn't feel very light. It doesn't feel very easy. Well, maybe there's something more that he's trying to show us. Maybe there's actually a deeper place of unveiling, a deeper place place of revelation that Jesus has for us, a a place of revelation that is so good, so joyful, so life-filled, so saturated with the life and love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the present sufferings you're experiencing that seem so hard and so difficult suddenly take on a completely different light, take on a completely different image. Your whole relationship to them becomes so transformed that suddenly you're like, oh yeah, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So I don't think we can really even get to the question of what our purpose is in terms of any functional sense, like, that. well, maybe your purpose is to solve world, world hunger, or maybe your purpose is to, you know, just look after your family, or whatever it is, those functional things. I don't think we can even really get there. Truly, we can't discuss those things in a Christian way until that, that, which has, ha- that has happened on the inside of us, which the Holy Spirit is doing, which is leading us to see his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It, it sounds counterintuitive. It, it doesn't work in the, in the natural mind. The rational mind has no logic to process that. That's because the natural rational mind has been trained by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> Jesus is trying to save us from that tree. In fact, he has saved us. We've just got to get with the program. I believe that God did not create us because he wanted servants. He didn't create us because he wanted a job done. Frankly, he's much better at doing the job than you are anyway. Much, much easier for him. You know, Jesus said, look, I could just snap my fingers and a a legion of angels would turn up and do what I want them to do if if that's what it was about. Like very, very easy for God to do what he wants to do if it's just about getting stuff done. You know, if it's just about functional progress. He doesn't need you to do it, frankly. In fact, you probably get in the way far more than you help. Let's be honest. I know I get in the way far more than I help that process, right? No condemnation. It's just a fact. When we, when we most think that we're contributing something is often when we are at, at risk at the very least of being most disruptive. I, I, I think about it like this. The only thing we really have to offer Jesus is our resistance. Are we resisting him or are we giving up the resistance? It's really the only choice that we've got. It's very, very simple. Are we going to drop the resistance and just allow him to be the one who, who dwells inside us? You know, on the question of worthiness, I think if Jesus decided to leave heaven, to come on earth, to take on flesh, human flesh, to live a human life, and to die on the cross with us and for us, I think that that's a statement that he considers it worth his time and effort to come and find us. Well, if Jesus considers us worth that, and the word worthy means, you know, are you worth it, right? If Jesus considers it worth his time and effort, then I don't think I I want to contradict Jesus by saying I am unworthy or you are unworthy. I don't think I want to say that. I think I have too much of the fear of the Lord in me to say, no, Jesus, really, you, you, I know you came and did that, but actually you shouldn't have really done that because uh, I, I wasn't worth the time. Well, who am I to contradict God? If God says I'm worth the time, then I ought to agree and believe what God says about me rather than what I've been trained to believe is the right Christian way, in air quote, way of thinking. That's a revolution in the mind, a revolution in the soul that begins to, we begin, when we start thinking like that, when we dare to allow ourselves to think like that, I want to, I want to dare you to allow yourself to think like that. When I start to believe, actually, I am worthy. 
Sorry, final thoughts. I'm kind of riffing here, but I feel I've got a bit of a flow. Think about it like this. The Apostle Peter, when he first meets Jesus, what does he say to him? Go away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. He thought he was unworthy. Like, we don't know how long, maybe it's six months later, Peter is arguing with the rest of the disciples about who is going to be the top dog in the kingdom of heaven. What a shift. In just a few short months of hanging out with Jesus, Peter goes from believing himself to be the worst of the worst. I'm so unworthy. I can't get around Jesus. He's far too holy for me. He goes from that to believing that he might actually be a candidate for heaven's like number one pope, right? <laughs> he thinks he's a candidate for being the top dog. Maybe I get to sit on Jesus's right hand in the kingdom of heaven. What a shift and a change that's happened in that guy. All he's done is hang out with Jesus. You see, I think if we hang out with Jesus, we'll start to experience those same kind of changes going on inside us. If we're not experiencing those changes, I want to suggest perhaps the yoke we've been carrying has not been Jesus's yoke. Maybe it's been a false Jesus or a diminished Jesus. Could I use a provocative word and say, maybe it's not been Christ, maybe it's been antichrist. Have we been laboring under an antichrist Christianity when Jesus has been trying to liberate us from that the whole time. Final thought. I don't believe God created us to be servants. We serve, and we should, and we should do as much good as we possibly can, and we should do more and more good. <laughs> we have the power to do it. We've got the Holy Spirit in us. Um, absolutely, uh, we, should, we should do good, and I, I never want to suggest otherwise. But God didn't create us to do good works in that sense, that, that he needs work done for us. He, he needs uh, service performed. He's got more than enough resources to just snap his fingers and make the thing happen himself if that's what he wants to do. I don't believe God actually created us to be good, even, in the sense of, well, you've, you've attained to some kind of moral goodness or, or, or moral place. I don't believe God created us to be wise or smart or sophisticated. I don't believe he created us to worship him and serve his glory. I believe that the Father, Son, and Spirit, before the foundation of the world, said, we want to create people to share in our glory. We want to create them to participate in the life that we share and that we have, the holy life and the holy love that we have. We want that to be in them and that they may be one as we are one and that they may be able to grow to see the whole human race as their extended family and to see the whole of creation as their, as the, the, their kind of garden of, of paradise to be looked after and, uh, and, and to be um, cared for and stewarded well. That we want them to participate with us in the midst of all of this. We were created to participate. I believe that participation can look like almost, almost anything. There's not a sacred and secular divide in that respect. There's a recognition of sacred presence in everything that we do. And I think that's the awareness Jesus is trying to, uh, the Holy Spirit in us is leading us to see is the presence of Christ in everyone and everything around such that we begin to say, oh, well, if I can see Jesus in you, then I, then suddenly spontaneously the love I have for him is going to reflect in the way that I love you. And then we begin to grow in love. We actually find we're being well nourished. And in being well-nourished, we grow up quite quickly. So, I want to encourage us. In thinking about this question of purpose, I think that questions of what, what we do functionally or instrumentally, and what vision we might have, these are all secondary questions. They're not bad, but if they're infected by this need to, to mitigate shame or, or try and accomplish or become something we don't believe we already are, then we're going to end up creating a real problem for ourselves. And we're going to keep going round and round in circles, circles of self-effort, constantly reactivating 
the idea of self-effort within us, when Jesus is like, look, I've actually come to kill off self-effort because I've come to kill self. In fact, I already did. I killed it on the cross. Instead, let's let go of that and let's allow ourselves to fall back into the robe of, of Jesus. And I think it looks like this. Jesus, what do you think of me? Maybe you just want to stop and ask, ask him that. Jesus, what do you really think of me? Can you show me where I've been thinking of myself in a way that is different from the way that you've been thinking of me? Father God, how do you feel about me? Do you really love me? If you ever ask the Father that question, or has that been an illegal question for you? It's like, well, I can't ask that question because that would be, that would be uh, blasphemous or it would be unbelieving. Have you ever actually asked him that question? Father God, do, do you love me? Can you show me? Holy Spirit, could you show me in a way that I've never seen before? Because I'm struggling to grasp this because the way I see things and the way you see things seem to be so very different. When you tell me that the yoke is easy and the burden is light and it doesn't feel that way for me, all of my logic tells me that you're wrong, Jesus. All of my logic tells me that. Why don't we admit that to God? God, all of your logic seems to make no sense whatsoever to the world that we experience at the moment. We, we need to acknowledge it before him and then say, okay, Holy Spirit, we need you to teach us. We need you to elevate our thinking to get us back into the penthouse. Like my friend uh, Georgian puts it, repentance is to repenthouse yourself. Get back into the penthouse suite. You've got down into the, into the basement. You need a repenthouse. Get yourself back up there into the high place that, that, that God has given you. And Holy Spirit, can we learn to enjoy it? Last sentence and then I'm done. I think it's the second point of the Westminster Greater Catechism. It begins with the question, what is the chief aim of man or the purpose of man? And it says the purpose of man is namely this, to love God and to enjoy him forever. Bless you guys. Looking forward to seeing you Sunday morning. Chris is making prayer noises at me. Yeah, yeah. Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to thank you that you are doing something deep in us, that in this time as we're coming out of the most monumental disruption that we've seen in our lifetimes, and there may well be even more, even crazier disruption to come. I want to thank you that you are not afraid, you are not surprised, you are not worried. Actually, you you have a way of living, of, of joyful acceptance of the world and of working to renew and restore this world to, until it becomes the new heavens and the new earth. You're doing that in such a wonderful way. I pray that you would release that light in our hearts again. I thank you it's not a difficult thing. It's not something we have to pray and fast for weeks and weeks in order to get because it's the reality that's in us. So Jesus, we just give ourselves permission to agree with you. We let down our resistances. Thank you, Jesus. It's not for us to produce joy in our hearts. It's not for us. It's not within our power or capability to produce peace. It's not within our strength or ability to become loving. So thank you for teaching us that. We agree with you, Jesus. We embrace the truth you say about us, and we let go of all of these artificial constructs, all these artificial tools and ways of thinking and being, and we know that it's probably going to be a two-steps-forward, one-step-back process for us, but thank you that that's not even a problem for you, that you've already gone ahead into every place that we're going to go, physically, temporally, notionally, you've already gone there. So thank you, Jesus. Would you make that light known to us now in our hearts? Holy Spirit, thank you for loving us. Would you strengthen our resolve to give ourselves the permission to actually enjoy being in you and with you and not to let the distractions of good works and bad works, of good and bad both, not to let those distractions pull us away 
from that place of enjoyment. We believe you, Jesus, when you say that that stuff is just going to emerge naturally from within. So we, we accept that and we receive. We pray for our whole church, our church family, and, you know, all connected with us, that we would, uh, we would see this like never before. And thank you, you're transfiguring us to another measure of glory, from one glory to another. Thanks, God. Bless you guys. Amen.